They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. This is a new show from Crooked Media where I try to bring you behind the scenes into foreign policy decision making, to hear all the stories of what it's like to travel with the president, to be in the room when the big decisions are made, and to understand what the issues are at play. A little housekeeping first. We initially had launched the show with the idea that it would show up once every other week. I think we're going to go to once a week now due to popular demand. So thank you for listening. I'm excited about that. My guest today is Dan Restrepo. Dan was in charge of all Latin America policy for President Obama. He's a brilliant guy. He understands the politics, the policy. Uh, I really think you're going to appreciate what he has to say. But before we get to that, I want a quick word from our sponsor. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. I am here with my friend, Dan Restrepo. Dan worked for President Obama as a policy advisor early on the 2008 campaign on the president's national security staff from 2009 until July of 2012. 
He was a policy advisor to Obama's 2012 campaign uh, and many, many gray hairs before that. He clerked on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals <laughs> and worked for Congressman Lee Hamilton on the staff of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, we get it, Dan. You're smart. Thank you for making me feel like shit. Thanks. And, and for the record, I have no gray hair. <laughs> you really don't. I don't. I do not know. I, I tell my girlfriend that they're uh, – I'm just getting blonder. But um, <laughs> thank you for joining me on Pod Save America, the latest uh, installment of podcasts out of Crooked Media. So, Dan, people in government have big sweeping titles, right? You have czars. Yes. You have chiefs of staff. You have secretaries of defense. I think your title takes the cake. <laughs> you are the senior director for the Western Hemisphere on the National Security Council. Dan, the Western Hemisphere is half the fucking world. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, how do you prepare for a job with that kind of diversity? Do, do governments in Chile and Brazil share any concerns with Canada and Mexico? No, I mean, one of the big challenges is exactly that, right? So the, the job has 34 countries that you're responsible for, kind of all aspects of U.S. relationship with those countries. Um, from Canada all the way south, um, I always joked I had a U.S.-sized hole in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> the U.S. part wasn't mine. There's a whole, yeah, a whole lot of other people who got to deal with that. Too. But it kind of was, yeah. And a lot of the issues that you do in, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, particularly Latin America issues, touch kind of daily life in a way that other foreign policy issues don't. Um, so it's one of the big challenges is exactly that, right? The, the interests of Brazil and Belize aren't the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't treat them the same. And that's one of the things that, quite frankly, from, from very early on um, with President Obama, actually then Senator Obama, was key was kind of he, – he got that, right? He got that you couldn't talk about Latin America as Latin America mm-hmm. and you couldn't kind of see everything in one way um, because the U.S. Uh, – folks in the U.S. often just kind of really broad brush, kind of good, bad, left, right, mm-hmm. kind of those, those sorts of things and kind of lump everybody in the region right. together where you just can't. So a lot of the challenge is focus, is figuring out kind of where it, where to use his time where, right. when we were at the White House, kind of how do you prioritize the, the most valuable resource you have, which is the time of the President of the United mm-hmm. States, and it's a scarce resource when, when yeah. you're working there. And then how do you go about dealing with the places where you can't use him? Right. Um, right. Because he's the, that's the most powerful tool. But you have to manage all these other relationships. Anyway. Right. Including our, our including our neighbors in Canada Correct. and in Mexico. Starting so, with our neighbors. Starting with our neighbors. So <laughs> first question for you is when is Mexico going to pay for the wall? Uh, never. OK. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Heard it here first. Breaking yeah, news. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, the Mexican presidents and former presidents have said it more colorfully than I just did. Mexico is fascinating. So the, the 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 intensity of the relationship with Mexico is unlike any other. So mm-hmm. when when we were at the White House, I in the forty some odd months that I was at the White House, um, I traveled to only one country of those thirty four I mentioned earlier more than three times. Right. So I went to Brazil three times. I went to Colombia three times. I went to Canada three times. I went to Mexico seventeen times. Wow. And for 1,700 different reasons, mm-hmm. right? It's because the topics were, were all over the map, right? I went with the president three times. I went with John Brennan, who about to be former CIA director John Brennan. <laughs> Not so happy on the way out the door, <laughs> Not so happy on the yeah. way out the door, but he was, he was doing Homeland Security and counterterrorism at the right. White House and traveled him a handful of times with Secretary Clinton. Hell, we took the entire national security – basically national security council except the president. So we took the – Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Director of National Intelligence, John Brennan when he was at the White House, Secretary of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. took all of those folks to a foreign country, right? Um, we took them to Mexico. We took mm-hmm. them twice. One of the really weird things, one of the frustrating things about the job at some level, it was – and you and I worked on this. It, and we couldn't get U.S. media attention. It, mm-hmm. It's as if we had taken them to witness protection. Yeah. Um, and those folks meet at a Starbucks in D.C., and it's front-page news. Right. Um, so there's this kind of weird disconnect. Um, but no, yeah, absolutely, the job starts with our neighbors because our neighbors touch us in ways that just really off the charts mm-hmm. compared to any other country in the world. Right. What's the most essential part of the U.S.-Mexico relationship, or is it all of it? Is it, is it security? Is it trade? Is it cultural ties? Like, what to you is it so essential about that? It's all of it, it, it because it, it touches – kind of touches daily life in the United States, the U.S.-Mexico relationship, right? we got tens of millions of people in the United States, Americans whose countries of heritage and origin are Mexico. And we have, you know, and it goes to like the ridiculous stuff, right? The highest selling condiment in the United States <laughs> is salsa. It's not ketchup, right? right. Um, but and that's reflective of how deeply connected we are. Right. Um, so, but it also goes to like really serious shit. Like to, it goes to the, the security side and kind of the hard security side, like, you know, dealing with potential terrorism issues and dealing with 
you know, getting them to decommission um, nuclear reactors where you could have materials for dirty bombs. Like, so, so it kind of runs the whole gamut. It right. runs everything. And it's, you know, it's water issues on the Colorado River. And yeah. it's Condoleezza Rice, when she was Secretary of State, joked that after she came out of her first meeting with the Canadians and the Mexicans, like, why do I feel like I just came out of a condo association <laughs> meeting, right? It's like, the issues are just so different right. um, uh. that... Um, but but Mexico touches everything in every way. So it's the cultural, it's the economic, it's the security. You name it, there's a Mexico piece to it. So you may have noticed that the immigration debate in this country is toxic. Most famously, President-elect Trump said Mexico was sending criminals and drugs and rapists right. um, to the country. I- I'm wondering – how much does that conversation trickle down into Latin America? Do you think it hurts our ability to get stuff done? Absolutely. Okay. Um, it, it absolutely it hurts our ability to get stuff done. The issue that people raise the most, I prepared and then participated in 30 bilateral meetings that President Obama had with counterparts in the Western in Latin America. And the only issue that came up in all 30 was the need for immigration reform in the United States um, and kind of concern about the immigration debate in the United States. And that's from countries that have not – like Brazil like, or Argentina, like that don't have large immigrant populations in the United States. But it still – it kind of affects how, how we are seen as seeing them. And if you're, you know, if you're talking smack about Mexicans and Mexico because, – because when – when Donald Trump says Mexicans, the whole region hears all of us. Right. They don't. They don't make that distinction, right? right. Um, quite frankly, I don't think Trump's making that distinction yeah. either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but um, so it absolutely kind of it, it poisons the well, if you will, kind of our inability to wrestle with that. Um, but I think it's also important, and this is something I always pointed out to them. And this doesn't justify by any stretch of the imagination the kind of ugliness and and you know unacceptable stuff we've heard about. Uh, Mexico, about immigrants, about Latinos in the United States. But it's this is not new in American history. Yeah. Ben Franklin talked about the Germans were sending their dumbest people um, <laughs> to colonial Pennsylvania and that we, you know, that if we weren't careful, we were going to all end up speaking German and not English. Um, so at times of big influx of immigrants um, relative to the population of the United States, um, we get these periods of real ugliness. Um, thankfully, that recede. Mm-hmm. Um, that that go away over time, and you see it at the you know you see it at the local level where, when you, all of a sudden when there's an immigrant population boom in any particular place, the initial reaction is really negative. The initial reaction is kind of fear of other, but as people live side by side and realize, look, these are hardworking people who are just trying to do right by their families and do right by their communities. People come to terms with it, and it and you know the great American experiment works and continues to work. I think we're living one of those moments as a yeah. country right now. So you're saying um, history repeats itself? I'm saying – We could it, potentially it, learn from it? <laughs> we could potentially <laughs> learn from it. Um, and, Silver lining, I guess. Right. Exa- yeah. So, so obviously it's, this is a dark moment um, and particularly for Latinos in the United States where we kind of feel put upon in a way that is completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's reason for uh, optimism in this. Look, California went down this route. Um, and Pete Wilson, you know, turned the state almost eternally, demo- you know, democratic right. by vilifying Latinos right. in something that worked politically short term, right? It, it, people forget that Pete Wilson's yep. initial move um, was actually beneficial to Pete Wilson, but ended up being a complete and utter disaster for him politically uh, over time. So, so I'm not, you know, necessarily in a place where I'm completely depressed about where we are on this stuff. I think that we've seen this, this piece of this movie has happened before. That's good. Um, so we met early on at the White House, and I quickly realized that you were a rare combination of a person who got the policy, got the politics, uh, and could speak like a human being in not one but two <laughs> languages. I was actually – I was reading a bunch of stuff in, in preparation for this interview, and I came across a transcript where in April we made an announcement, April 2009, yes. where we allowed Cubans to travel to Cuba to visit family and send back money to their family in Cuba – uh, we changed the law. In the middle of that briefing, there was a question about when our special forces rescued Captain Phillips from the Somali pirates. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a nice reminder of how fucking insane our day-to-day was. I remember I, yeah, leaving I, Easter brunch with my girlfriend and her family to, like, go manage this. I'm like, wait, we shot who from where? And, okay. Fine. But, you know, I think that there's this – we sort of hinted at this earlier, but there's this – there's this false piety in foreign policy uh-huh. where we act like it's divorced from politics. Right. But that's, that's, that's clearly ridiculous Nonsense. because you need support for your policies. And I feel like you're an expert in Cuba. 
which may be the most politicized foreign policy issue, maybe tied with Middle East peace. Right. Like, it's, I don't it's know. It's up there. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering, how did you balance politics and, and policy when you were doing your job? It, it was hard. And, and Cuba is the perfect example. Um, so the I've spent a lot of time beating my head against Cuba policy going back to starting in D.C., right? I worked yeah. on the House Foreign Affairs Committee back in the mid-'90s, and, and Cuba was a big issue then. And, and quite frankly, one of the like shocking things of doing this stuff intensely in the mid-'90s and then coming back to it intensely uh, at the beginning of the Obama mm-hmm. years um, was how little things had changed. <laughs> Um, on the Cuba stuff, like yeah. the political actors were the same guy. I mean, it was all the same cast of characters saying the same stuff. Same over jumpsuits. And over. On yeah, the no, he said, yeah, so. it was, yeah, it was all kind of all the same kind of goofiness going nowhere. And Cuba was was one of those things where you you said you know where we started back in April of two thousand nine. Um, now seems like peanuts, but there was this really deliberate process. So the so there's two things. There's kind of two things to keep in mind: what you can legally do, mm-hmm. and then what you can politically do. Right. And on Cuba, the the legal is how much you know. There's a ridiculous DC phrase: how much regulatory space you have, right? How many things the president can do without Congress mm-hmm. um, before he runs out of space. And then similarly, there's political space, right? There's and and the the sweet spot on Cuba, at least early on, was I knew I was doing my job well when we announced something and I got criticized both by the right and the left. Sure. Not doing right. enough. So I, so I, I, I kind of wanted to be told I wasn't doing enough. Yeah. Did, did um, you write a roadmap for this, like during the campaign? Yeah. So at the really kind of the beginning, the beginning of the campaign. So I wrote two Cuba roadmaps, and again, speaking of the similarities of things. So I wrote one in late 2007, probably. Actually, no, probably mid 2007. Um, so early days of the campaign, and kind of the list of you know all of the possible things you could do mm-hmm. to change US Cuba policy which clearly wasn't getting anywhere useful right like a menu that, at a restaurant right exactly a menu at a restaurant so so wrote that memo in in mid 2007 for candidate Obama we started working our way down that menu um, for lack of a better term, in the transition, quite mm-hmm. frankly. That was the other thing I was doing the, during the transition, now that I think about it, was also working with the lawyers to figure out how much, you know, convincing them of what the regulatory space was, how much legal space we mm-hmm. had, um, and then finding that sweet spot where we had still some regulatory space left and s- political space. We didn't occupy all the political space um, because we wanted both to grow over time, and, and quite frankly, that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. I also wrote a roadmap as I left the White House in the middle of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll never forget when we hired the, the guy to replace me, Ricardo Zuniga, who along with Ben Rhodes is the two guys who negotiated the kind of historic breakthrough with the Cubans. Um, Ricardo is a relatively young guy. It was kind of an unusual pick for the job if you didn't know why we picked right. him for the job. Right, right. And I remember telling Ricardo when, when kind of once we had hired him, look, look, the principal reason we hired you is we're, you're going to change – U.S. Cuba policy <laughs> radically. You got um, a big, yeah, and he got the, big plate, pal. <laughs> yeah, and he, got, he had this like totally astonished look on his face. Um, now, were, were you able to give that guidance because back in 07, 08, 09, Obama said to you, hey, this is the long game? Yeah, I mean, it, yes. The sense was from from the get-go was the long game was get to a much more reasonable place, get to a right. place where we're actually doing something useful, right? The, the, the whole – the kind of whole point here is – Right, the Cuban people have suffered long enough, and the Cuban people, and one of the things they've suffered from is not being able to participate in their own democracy, right? Mm-hmm. To, to participate in a democracy, um, and to have some voice in how they live their daily lives. And so the idea was to start helping them have more space, and that's why having their family visit, having their family be able to send them money, mm-hmm. so they're less dependent on the the Castros for for having money or having food. Um, that you know slowly helps build out space, and then over time. You, you kind of get the U.S. government out of the way. Got it. Right? And so, so yeah, so the 2012 roadmap looks a lot like the 2007 roadmap in terms of what the menu was. It was just kind of there was more political space and we could go further down the list. And quite frankly, in the spring of 2009, President Obama's hands were full saving sure. the global economy and Fair saving enough. the U.S. economy and saving the auto industry. A couple wars. A couple wars. Right. And so, you know, in the rack and stack, Cuba wasn't going to be right. very high, nor should it have been. Right. So – the United States, we had an embargo on basically all imports to Cuba starting in like the early 60s, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like this is an, an issue where, much like Middle East peace again, a lot of people know some shit went down back in the day, but they don't necessarily <laughs> know the origins. We all kind of brush past. Can you give the quick and dirty recap of like when did this conflict start? Right. Okay, so so the U.S. and Cuba have never had a normal relationship. We've had a really kind of messed up relationship from jump. There, there have been times in our history where people wanted to make Cuba a state in the United States. 
we won Cuba um, from the Spanish in the, the Spanish-American War at the end of the 19th century. Um, and it gained, and you know, Cuba gained its independence, but we only gave it. We, the U.S., said you can be independent, but here's your constitution, and it has a provision in it <laughs> that allows us to intervene anytime we don't like what's going on. Cool. Uh, yeah, uh, that didn't work out that well. And so over time, the, they they ended up having a very repressive government, mm-hmm. and so the, the Castros, um, who were very young at the time in their late twenties. Um, started a revolution, and it's one of the few successful rev- Marxist revolution. Actually, it wasn't even a Marxist revolution at the, at the get-go, but it, one of the few successful revolutions uh, mm-hmm. in the Western Hemisphere. Um, overthrows the, the dictator, a guy named Bautista, um, in, on January 1st, 1959. Fidel um, rolls into Havana and takes over. And takes over, you know, with a pretty lefty view of the world. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly becomes very lefty, right? Very re- and very repressive. Um, so, kind of falls into this again. We're at the at the kind of the height of the Cold War, and at time, kind of peak, countries pick sides between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and the USSR and the Soviet Union. And given the complicated history we'd had back in the day with the Cubans, the you know Fidel went the other way. Um, right. Fell Fidel right. went the Soviet Union way. Um, early 1960s, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis where the Soviets decided to put nuclear warheads on um, missiles in Cuba. Um, President Kennedy has to get them to get them out. So you have this confrontation, the closest the world's ever come to full-on nuclear uh, exchange. Between, hey, give it a couple months. Yeah, okay, so, so, yeah so far. <laughs> um, <laughs> and right around that time, right around the Cuban Missile Crisis time, the, the U.S. kind of puts in a series of sanctions um, against – the Cuban economy, really. Um, it was at a time when sanctions were a lot more broad, you know, a lot broader than they are today. Mm-hmm. Today, we tend to sanction people right. Uh, right. and individuals who are doing Indeed. stuff that's bad instead of countries. But back in the day, we kind of took broad brush and sanctioned Cuba writ large. So we and, the, yeah. and that starts the Cuban embargo, which kind of, which actually, as a matter of law, is with us today. Right. And, and so that, <laughs> so in classic DC fashion, we have a uh, a policy and a set of laws uh, in place for 50-some-odd years that do absolutely nothing to change the situa- situation on the ground or our relationship with Cuba until 2015. Obama announces this historic <laughs> deal to restore his diplomatic relations. What do you think that means practically and, and symbolically? So symbolically, it's huge. Um, symbolically, it is kind of the end of the Cold War in the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Latin America, uh, a place where the Cold War became very hot in a bunch of places, right? The civil wars in Central America where right. hundreds of thousands of people got killed uh, are a function of the Cold War. Um, the similar conflict in Colombia that's coming to an end um, with similar casualties over time, a function of the Cold War. Um, so the Cold War was kind of a very kind of important formative thing in Latin America and in U.S.-Latin American relations, normalizing diplomatic relations with Cuba and saying that we want to be, have a normal relationship with Cuba. Uh, symbolically was was incredibly mm-hmm. important. Practically, it has there, – there are – you know, the benefits are limited in the short term in large measure because the Cubans – Cubans have got this very complicated dance. Um, and they didn't do this because they wanted to. They did this because they had to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did it because Venezuela's in a death spiral who's kind of been their economic – you know, their sugar daddy yeah. um, yep. who's yeah. kind of kept them afloat after the Soviet Union, quite frankly. And – you get Raúl Castro, the younger brother of kind of the legendary leader of the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro, who recently died, or they recently told us he died. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how recently he died. <laughs> um, and and so so the Cubans are trying to maintain control, right? They're not mm-hmm. interested in democracy. They're not right. interested in respecting the rights of their people. But they realize they have to have a better economic relationship with the United States. And, and quite frankly, in December, uh, December of uh, 14, what President Obama and President Castro did is they both put bets on the table, mm-hmm. right? And President Obama's bet is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the U.S. out of the way. I'm going to stop being the excuse for all the crazy shit you're every doing. Grievance, yeah. Every grievance. Every rationale for, for cracking down on people. I'm going to try creating as much connectivity and much, you know, people going there, doing business, doing, um, because I don't think your political system can survive that. Mm-hmm. And Raul Castro was like, I'm going to try opening up as li- – I'm going to open up, but I'm going to try opening up as little as I can and holding on for as long as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of this dance that we've now seen over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, I think life is qualitatively better in Cuba today, but at the same time, people are still getting their heads bashed in by secret police. Mm-hmm. They're still getting detained. 
Um, they're actually getting detained probably more in, in, in kind of absolute terms in terms of the number of people being detained. But and this sounds this sounds but they're being detained for a couple of days here and there, whereas it used to be twenty years here and there. Right, and and that doesn't justify and but it also underscores that the Cubans are trying desperately to hold on to control, mm-hmm. and they're finding it harder and harder to do. Right, I mean th- this is as heated an issue as you as oh, you yeah. find discussed, especially in, in places like Florida. I mean, I wonder you you hear critics saying like, how could Obama go to a baseball game in Cuba while? They're still locking up dissidents, and they're fundamentally a repressive regime. Do you think that's are these false choices? I mean, what do you think about? Yeah, that? I think it misses the point. And again, it's the so for fifty some odd years, the excuse that the Cubans have used for bashing people's heads in is that the U.S. is the evil empire who's trying to overthrow us. Right? That argument gets a whole lot harder to to run. Um, on a daily basis when the supposed emperor of the evil empire has gone to a baseball game <laughs> yeah. with Raul Castro. And people like and him. And people like him. And quite frankly, he looks more like Cubans today than Cuban leadership looks like Cubans right. today, right. Um, given his own background. Um, the, it just becomes a lot harder to do. So uh, you take the – I think that one of the things that, that President Obama has done is he's willing to take that kind of short-term gotcha political hit. Right for a long game benefit um, for the United States and for Cuba. Um, so he he's, hasn't been as concerned with kind of the day-to-day noise that those sorts of things generate, but understands kind of where he's headed and how this fits into where he's headed. So uh, yeah, I, I get that people are upset by it, um, but I think they're failing to, the, you know, the, the old expression, they're failing to see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I mean, I know I don't, predicting is uh, is, a, is a fool's errand, but do you think Trump will roll back these changes or uh, related? Do you know anyone who has a hotel down there that they want to sell to Don Jr. or Ivanka to help us preserve these changes? Um, that, would, that would certainly be the easiest way to preserve the changes. Um, so the changes that the, the President Obama had done over the course of all eight years, there's a bunch of different changes, right? And there's different – we've gone kind of piece by piece going back to that notion of – Filling regulatory space, but not all of it, and leaving political space so you could keep mm-hmm. growing, and 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 that's happened. They've now filled pretty much all the regulatory space before they left. Right. That actually gives Trump the ability, and I think the likelihood that they'll quote unquote roll back a couple of things, but they're not going to roll back anything important. Got it. Um, so they can kind of look tough, kind of placate some of the kind of dying embers of the Cuban American hardline in South Florida. But at the same time, not kind of disrupt the overall thing. So I don't Got see it. us closing the embassy. I don't see us shutting off um, regular air travel. I don't. I don't. Those kinds of things. I don't see. Maybe there's going to be a limit on how many cigars and rum you can bring back again. Fine. Um, right. Fine. Uh, <laughs> if that's what makes you feel better that you're being tough <laughs> on the Castros, fine. Right. Um, right. So and, and they'll be louder. Right. They'll they'll play. I mean, the, the the one problem, and I think this is more meaningful than kind of what they the practical stuff that they roll back. Uh, there's two things. One is that the, he he will say dumb things, mm-hmm. um, and he'll kind of play the role of the evil empire yeah. uh, much more readily than than President Obama ever did. And the second is, and this goes back to this notion that the the Raul Castro and the Cubans are doing as little as they can. So one of the things that's going to happen, so so President Obama, Rhodes, other folks have been pushing on the Cubans uh, all along to keep doing more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's And that makes their life harder every time you get yeah. pushed. That's going to kind of go away. So the, so they'll get a little more breathing room in that sense. They'll have the kind of useful, the useful idiot um, emperor kind of thing to to blame again. And they won't have a U.S. government that's like, why haven't you, you know, why haven't you done a deal with these guys, or why haven't you, you know, allowed more internet access, or things that we've seen over the course right. of the last mo- last few months. But fundamentally, fundamentally, I, I think we're we'll stay on the road to to you know as close as normal again. We've never had a normal relationship yeah. with Cuba. Twenty seventeen, brought to you by useful idiots. <laughs> um, you mentioned Colombia earlier, and I think. The, the, the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the most commonly called FARC, have been at war for 50 years. I've read that as many as 220,000 people died in this conflict. One in 10 Colombians were displaced. Presidential candidates were kidnapped. Planes were hijacked. The government basically lost control of the country. And you mentioned this earlier, sort of the beginning of the leftist, Leninist revolutions. Like, what the fuck was going on down there? And why is it never on television in the United States? <laughs> um, second question I leave to the, the august members of the media like right. yourself to Fair. help me understand why, um, why that hasn't happened. So Colombia is near and dear to me. 
for beyond the professional. So my last name is as Colombian as it can possibly mm-hmm. be. So Restrepo is not just an outstanding documentary about um, the war in <laughs> Afghanistan, named after a Colombian American who lost his life at that firebase. That's why the the, the right. firebase has that name. It, so so Restrepo is as Colombian a last name as it can possibly be. My older siblings were born in Colombia. My dad was born and raised in Colombia. I grew up spending summers in Colombia. And it's a remarkable country, but it's also a country that has been cursed <laughs> mm-hmm. um, by really profound violence. Um, and so the, the 50 years of the conflict with the FARC um, was preceded. So before that, there's a period in Colombian history that is referred to simply as the violence, la violencia. Right. Um, so, you know, and it's a 40-year period of time. Um, so, you know, you, things aren't good when, when you, have four, you have four decades labeled la violencia. A lot of this is – so Colombia geographically has a real big challenge to it, right? It's the only place – so there's a range of mountains that run from Canada all the way to Chile and Argentina, um, known as the Rockies in North America, known as the Andes in South America. Um, there's one place that those mountains divide into three mountain ranges mm-hmm. and that's Colombia. Um, and so, so Colombia has always been this country where the center and kind of the political and economic centers of the country have been completely um, separated from the rest of the country. Just cut off. Just cut off. Um, physically cut off. And that kind of lack of connectivity has created these huge open kind of ungoverned spaces um, where all sorts of mischief has taken mm-hmm. place over the years. Um, it's where kind of the drug trade was born. Um, and has fueled the most recent conflict. So the FARC conflict started as kind of a peasant revolution, but over the five decades that it went, it has, you know, became um, kind of narco-fueled, so drug-fueled. Um, I, I used to say it was the one conflict in the world where the U.S. was funding both sides. Um, right. We were funding the one side on street corners all across the country, and mm-hmm. we were funding the other by giving the Colombian government a couple billion dollars to help them get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. But that couple billion dollars, so it's called Plan Colombia, and it's been very controversial and, and not, you know, Colombia is by far, it's not the land of milk and honey today, but Colombia is a much better place mm-hmm. than it has been for a long time, and largely because the Colombians themselves decided, they kind of looked into the abyss in the early 2000s and like, we got to do something yeah. different here. Yeah. Uh, and the U.S. helped them, um, and the Colombian military became and is to this day kind of one of the most professional um, most effective fighting forces really in the world. Um, their special operations guys and our special operations guys spend a lot of time together and have an enormous amount of respect for one another. So the, the military got to the point where they've kind of took the fight to the FARC, have way scaled the FARC's military capability down from about 20,000 fighters in, in early 2000s to about 5,000 today. Um, the current president of Colombia, President Juan Manuel Santos, um, negotiated Kind of this, it sat down and engaged in a very long negotiation with the FARC, um, and they got a they got a peace deal. It's not a perfect peace deal, but like any deal, it, it, it's got its pluses and minuses. But it kind of opens this whole new chapter in in Colombian history. Um, why it, it, the the one thing that has changed, and we haven't spent a lot of attention, kind of media attention in the U.S. about um, Colombia. But two things have changed. Like people now vacation in Colombia, mm-hmm. um, like friends of mine and, and you know, people send their kids there to yeah. study, which yeah. was unthinkable. Like when I used to tell people growing up in the 80s and 90s that I was going to spend my summer in Colombia, they'd look at it at least right, like we were completely out of our minds. <laughs> and, and had we not been from there, it would have made no sense. But now, you know, that has changed. So the kind of image of Colombia has changed. And I think that's, that's because the reality of Colombia changed. Um, that's, that's enormously important. And, and Colombia is an important country because it's in kind of, it's in the middle of everything. Like it's geographically in the middle of Latin America. Um, and has kind of always had a bunch of weight because of that. So, so you sound kind of you sound hopeful. I do. This I, yes. sticking, even though voters rejected it at one point. Voters rejected it at one point. They went back. They renegotiated pieces of it. They they kind of ratified it through their Congress. And again, it's not a perfect agreement. And there's kind of two things to be worried about in Colombia. Um, one's going to sound really familiar. There's a deep political polarization in uh, Colombia, yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, like there is in a lot of places, yeah. um, including right here at home. And, but there's also Colombia, as I noted earlier, right? La violencia um, happened kind of not that long after that. The, what became the FARC government, FARC government conflict started. Colombia has been notorious for at the ends of conflicts kind of seeding the next con- – like setting up the terms right. and conditions for the next right, conflict. Right, right. And one of the real big challenges is the Colombian government uh, – and this goes back to the geography of Colombia uh, the topography of Colombia – the Colombian government's ability to be present kind of beyond the military in all parts of Colombia is still not what it needs to be. 
Um, and that's going to kind of create these vacuums. And as long as people are consuming drugs and there's a lot of money flowing back into the country, then you're going to get mm-hmm. – it could go as the you know, very DC expression. It could go sideways, yeah. um, which, yeah. is, which is kind of Washington speak for things going badly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why sideways. It doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> but fundamentally, Colombia is in a, such a much better place than it was that it's hard to be pessimistic about yeah. Colombia right now. So speaking of countries that you know sort of made a choice to pull back from the abyss, I wanted to quickly touch on Venezuela. Um, I was reading this long, amazing uh, New Yorker piece that came out in uh, November of 2016, and this passage jumped out at me about uh, Hugo Chavez. Chavez was a telegenic populist with a gift for electioneering. He mesmerized the country with his Sunday TV show, Hello, President. I wonder what The Apprentice <laughs> translates to, on which he railed for hours on end against his opponents, particularly the country's traditional business elites and imperialists. And Washington even took the TV to order the jailing of a judge who released a hated enemy. So I- I'm half kidding around here, but right. sort of a two-part question. Like Latin America has seen the rise of a number of populist autocrats like mm-hmm. Hugo Chavez, who was uh, in charge of uh, Venezuela for a long time. Is there a lesson to be learned from that experience? And I wonder if you could also talk to us a bit about the, the situation in Venezuela, how they went from like the richest country per capita in South America in the 70s right. to running out of food and medicine, hyperinflation, the economy is collapsing. And, you know, I, I think what a, a lot of people want to hear when they hear these discussions is not just how bad things are, but if there's anything they can do in their lives right. to help people. Yeah. So uh, Venezuela has a curious story. And let me take this kind of – let me do again a classic Washington thing. Let me, yeah. Let me, take, <laughs> let me take your last part now. Uh, <laughs> let me ignore the part I don't want to answer and, and, because you gave me a bunch of different options. One's this whole notion of populism, right? Yeah, the America – kind of countries in Latin America have done populism. The, those of us who work on Latin America stuff always kind of often point out that the, that the Americas does things first. Um, kind of democratic transitions in the post-Cold War era started in Latin America and kind of you saw it elsewhere and kind of the post-colonialism started in, the United, in, in Latin America, kind of the democratization of the 80s and 90s started in Latin America, a bunch of different kind of global trends that people identify with other parts of the world actually often started mm-hmm. in Latin America. Populism is another one of those, kind of the current spate of populism in in large measure started uh, in the Americas. And actually the story of Chavez is is an instructive one and Chavez's first election. So Chavez is this kind of um, had been this discredited former colonel who had been thrown in jail for trying to start a coup, um, an actual coup, right? Like mm-hmm. using guns and tanks and stuff to right. take power. Um, spent some time in jail and and cam- comes out of jail and kind of declares himself a political actor. And he w- kind of rides this tide to his first election, pure, you know, a, a pure no no funny business mm-hmm. democratic win. Uh, in a country that had pretty strong, um, at least by Latin American standards, democratic institutions, and he gets to he gets to his inaugural, and he, the the first thing he does, right? He the, there the Congress and the president are elected separately, so it was still the old Congress, and uh, and he started his inaugural speech by thanking those gathered um, for creating the political conditions that made his win possible, mm-hmm. and what it was was the political parties had kind of lost all credibility with the Venezuelan people and particularly with poor people. So Venezuela has always been a rich country, but it's always had a poverty problem. Right. Um, and it's a, co- a country that has, what again, one of these terms that you use in national security speak, the resource curse, right? It, yeah. has, it has lots and lots of oil. It actually has the largest proven oil reserves in the world. Um, and those reserves have been and, – and that economy was very beneficial over the course of Venezuelan history when, when oil was booming. Um, for kind of middle class and up in Venezuela mm-hmm. um, and didn't work at all for poor people in Venezuela. And Chavez tapped into that um, and rode that uh, win and then kind of managed to undermine um, institutions as he went. Um, had the huge benefit of being elected when oil was at like $10 a barrel and riding it to $120 right. a barrel. Um, so you can buy off a lot of people along the way, and he and he and he did, but he kept winning elect right. He kept winning elections, and he won them more or less fairly. I mean, he spent a lot of government resources to make poor people's lives better, and he he established a real meaningful economic, uh, excuse me, political base that mm-hmm. way. Uh, but at the same time, he kind of ruined the other parts of the economy, right? Yeah. So he ruined it, it when, and this is the resource curse when when you have kind of a ton of money coming in. 
Um, it takes discipline that very few people, basically only Norway has the discipline to do. <laughs> yeah. um, it was with those guys. They right, just get the, it right. The, yeah, the, the Norwegians got it going, but they're pretty much the only ones who got it going. <laughs> Um, where they save their money for when the price of oil goes down, they don't run out of money. Um, yeah, exactly. The Venezuelans spent it, spent it, spent it, spent it, and they started spending it on importing a bunch of stuff, including food. Right? Venezuela is a country that used to produce its own food, but at, with oil at one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel, it's cheaper to import than to grow at home. So they ended up kind of displacing and kind of ruining the productive capacity of the country. And as the price of oil comes back down. And you don't have the same kind of cash to go buy stuff. You have this problem, um, and and then Chavez dies, and he gets replaced by uh, Nicolás Maduro, um, the current president. Um, he may still be president when this comes out. Um, he's a guy who's been pretty precarious. Uh, I know him actually quite well. He's the, he was the foreign minister back when I was at the White House, the Venezuelan foreign minister. So at international meetings, I got to deal with him. Um, Did you? How not, did you find him? He's not the brightest bulb. The brightest um, bulb. No, he's uh, he's a former bus driver. Um, and, which is a noble profession, but he was a guy who couldn't make a decision on his own. He always had to call Chavez, literally, like almost to take a bathroom break. He had to call Chavez <laughs> back home to, with, in these meetings. With and none of the charisma and ability. None of the control. charisma, none of and, – and, and so kind of you take away Chavez's charisma, you take away the price of oil, you have kind of ruined the basic structures of the Venezuelan economy other than oil, and you get what – you get in Venezuela right now, which is a country in a death spiral. I mean, it's a it's a real mess, um, and it's and it's creating real hardship for the Venezuelan people. It's starting to create problems for Venezuela's neighbors, basically for Colombia and and Brazil, um, where not insignificant numbers of people Venezuelans are starting to flee the country um, because the conditions are so bad. Um, and that over time is going to be a problem for the U.S. It's going to be a problem for others. That just you know a country that that's unstable is not a good thing. So so what is the risk of them going from failing to failed state? Like, uh, why should we care? It's 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 a it's a kind of second degree risk I think for the U.S. Okay. Um, and the way it becomes a first tier risk for the U.S. is kind of the external effects of Venezuela um, collapsing. So so Venezuela has again has the advantage they have cash flow right. Most failing countries don't have cash flow. Um, but they still have a lot of oil and they're still selling oil and there's still yeah. cash coming right. in. Um, so they're able to – you know, there's three – there's kind of three groups of folks, guys with guns in Venezuela. There's the military. There's the national – there's the army. There's the national guard. And then there's like informal groups that the government has armed, um, which could get really dangerous. Um, for right now, they have the cash flow to kind of keep all those guys happy and mm-hmm. on the same side. If those guys get crosswise with each other, then the situation gets worse. The migration gets worse. To the extent it starts affecting Venezuela's – so Venezuela over the last couple of decades has spent a lot of money selling kind of subsidized oil to countries in the Caribbean and Central America. If the price of oil starts going up and the Venezuelan – Venezuela can't ride that because they've kind of lost a lot of capacity along the way. Um, then you get kind of countries, you know, these pretty pretty fragile countries in the Caribbean and Central America – their economic situation gets worse, um, and economic situations getting worse in the world have one and one effect, and they've always had the same effect, and that's people on the move, right? Um, in large numbers, right? And and really, if Venezuela if Venezuela were to full on collapse, and they could no longer support Cuba, then you get into the one thing that used to keep me awake at night in my old job at the White House, like the one thing in Latin America that can kind of keep you awake. Other parts of the world have more things to keep them awake. For me, the nightmare scenario was mass migration. The nightmare scenario was tens of thousands of people getting on boats in the Caribbean, um, either from Cuba or Haiti. Those are the two places mm-hmm. where it's traditionally been. So desperate that kind of that was the only thing to do to head towards the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not – you know that ends up costing t- thousands and thousands of lives. And it would be a political S show of the first order here in the United States. You can say shit on this. A shit show of the first order on the <laughs> United States. And so that's kind of how Venezuela going from failing to failed could become kind of a, you know, top of the list kind of problem for a president of the United States. The way Haiti was for Clinton in the 90s. Before we move on from Venezuela, I I would be remiss to say I went to a little school called Kenyon College in Ohio. uh, And a guy who went there before me is named Leopoldo Lopez, who is a uh, a politician who has been imprisoned by Maduro for like three or four, maybe five years now. Uh, so if you guys listening want to pick up the cause, check out Free Leopoldo. Uh, there's a website. Yeah. He's, a, he's a charismatic, smart guy trying to do the right thing who's gotten locked away by a 
He, yeah, despot. it's it, by a despot who's desperately afraid of of putting Leopoldo back on the street because Leopoldo's much more popular than he yeah. is today. Uh, Leopoldo's a guy who came to visit me in the White House um, when I was at the White House. I've actually sat and chatted with his wife and his mom Very on a number important. of occasions, um, and they're actually making life much harder for his wife these days. Yeah. And they got young kids that are roughly age my kid. It's it's a it's a it's a tough story, um, but it's one where people need to need to kind of get engaged in the public debate on, so that the pressure stays on on the Venezuelans. Yeah. So I, I was half kidding about this with the Trump lead in, but there, you know, I do wonder if you see a lesson in sort of the rise of you know the Pinochets or the Chavezes or the you know name your thirty one flavors of of autocrats in the region. If there's something that precipitated that rise that people should be mindful for, because you know I don't want to sound alarmist or hyperbolic, but people are genuinely afraid. And I think looking to history is not the worst idea. No. Uh, so, so I think two things to keep in mind. One is to understand how these guys came to be. And that goes to kind of the discrediting of the governing institutions that existed at the time. Um, and, and Pinochet and Chavez are very different in right. that one bombed his way. You know, Pinochet shot his way to power right. um, on September 11th. Um, <laughs> it's a date that's been um, infamous in Chilean history for much longer than U.S. history. And um, Chavez, who did it through the ballot box. The I think the important thing, and the Chavez story is incomplete, but this is how the Chavez story is going to finish and how the Pinochet story finished, um, is people stayed engaged. People stayed engaged and stayed active and raised their voices at a time when, you know, yes, people are afraid in the United States right now um, and uncertain in the United States. Um, we're nowhere near what the folks in Chile stared down yeah. um, over several decades yeah. to, to get their democracy back. And hopefully we'll never be anywhere near that. But I think the instructive lesson is – and this has been true for populists throughout Latin America – is to for folks to remain engaged or to get back engaged in the game. Um, and the second is to for, – for political actors to not get as hung up on the kind of what your – what the other guys say, what the populist is saying, mm-hmm. um, but focused on what they're doing. Got it. Um, and having real responses and real answers of what you would do differently, not just that guy's bad mm-hmm. and what he's doing is right. dangerous. That's right. part of what you have to say every time they do something that's dangerous. Um, but you also have to – it's got to be and we would do X right. instead. Right. Um, so I think it's the – don't lose hope. You know, Either get engaged, stay engaged or get engaged. Um, and focus on you know clear all, kind of clear governing alternatives, not just criticism, because these guys kind of feed off criticism. Right, that is very good advice, and we've seen this play out for a while. <laughs> yeah. um, I think my last question for you, unless I forgot anything, which is, you know, it sounds like Trump wants to pull back from the world stage. I assume that would mean Latin America, and I'm wondering who you think would fill that void and what it might mean. China, and it's not entirely clear what it would mean. Um, so the Chinese have been much more active economically active in Latin America for quite some time now, um, partic- particularly inside yeah, they buy the bunch of resources. So they've done what every great kind of rising power in the history basically you know, since Columbus forward um, has done, um, which is utilize particularly South America for its resources. It's an incredibly resource rich, right? It's got mm-hmm. – You've got a third of the world's fresh water. Um, it's got, which means it's got tremendous agriculture. It's got my, you know, my minerals up the wazoo. It's got oil. It's got kind of everything going for it from a natural resource perspective. So this first, the Spanish, um, in a colonial way, came and kind of reaped the benefits of that. Um, then the United States, as a great power, kind of declared it off limits to the rest of the world through the Monroe Doctrine and said, "This is ours, and we're going to do what we want to here in this region." Um, in a pretty colonial but, you know, slightly more sophisticated way. And the Chinese are now, you know, w- with what is a colonial uh, economic approach but a more sophisticated way, they're, they're coming to buy stuff, right? right. They're, not, right. they're not taking it. Um, they're buying it. So China has already been kind of economically more engaged in the region, which uh, when we were at the White House was always kind of the, the way that we thought about it. And it was this is what we had to up our game. We had, right. to get more, we had to get more engaged. It was important for the U.S. We had to compete. We knew we had to compete. If the U.S. decides it's not going to compete, that kind of makes things easier for the Chinas of the world to to buy. You know, the, you know the basic economics, right? They'll be able to buy stuff more cheaply. The Chinese, to this point, haven't really tried using any of that economic relationship for political reasons. But given kind of this full-on retreat, we seem to be about to have from President mm-hmm. Trump from the kind of global stage. 
that's not clear to me that that will still be the case, right? They they may start right. The Chinese now kind of see themselves as the guardian of of order um, and markets in the world, which is such a you know. <laughs> So fucked up. Yeah, that Xi Jinping views himself as kind of a champion of trade and, and internationalism and globalism uh, is 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 a little concerning. Yeah, and, and so they're the likeliest actor to. And at the same time, though, like one of the things that we fall into, and I just fell into it. Is viewing Latin America kind of as a passive actor, right? Like some, right, right, something right. that. And one of the interesting things that's happened over the course of the last. Few years, a few decades, but really in the last ten years or so, is Latin America has gotten kind of much more assertive as being part of the world, mm-hmm. um, and so that's the other thing that, and that's not a bad thing. And and you've got kind of serious countries and serious leaders um, who will similarly fill the space both within the region, but also globally of the U.S. kind of receding from worrying about what the rules are and worrying about um, making sure things you know can move about the world in, in an orderly fashion. I think you'll get kind of Latins more engaged on those kinds of issues and on climate and things that, you know, they're not going to – the U.S. is going to be alone in denying climate change, right? <laughs> right. The, the, Chinese, the Chinese yeah, the Chinese are, are making a move to the clean economy. Um, the Latins, again, starting of talking about things starting first in the Americas have, have been way ahead. They have, the, they have the cleanest electricity matrix in the world because back to the, all that fresh water. Um, they yeah. have a bunch of hydropower. Um, but they also have wind and they're using solar and they're so, – so so they're, they're going to stay engaged and probably get more engaged on the global stage on those kinds of issues as the U.S. decides you know, for bizarre set of reasons to cede leadership to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a happy way to that's end a happy this conversation. Way to, yeah, Dan, I could talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> I just want to say thank you for, for this conversation for – for saving the Western Hemisphere for all those years. Did what um, I could. My siblings always love the fact that I'm the youngest of five kids, so when they called my office, they, they, they answered the phone, Western Hemisphere. <laughs> <laughs> and my older brother just got the hugest <laughs> chuckle out of that. That's great. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank you. you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water-soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home.